Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Philip Haynes, if you're from Winston, that name rings a bell. Philip Haynes was the CEO of the Haynes Clothing Company and uh, the brand here that's made famous headquartered in Winston. And uh, when I first moved to Winston-Salem, he died, and I had the opportunity to attend his funeral. And, uh, man, just a really interesting, uh, inspiring philanthropist and businessman. But during the uh, funeral, the pastor quoted a few different quotes from this guy's book, Philip Haynes had written a book, and the title of the book, as soon as I heard him say the title, I knew I wanted to read it. So intriguing. The title of the book is How to Get Anyone to Do Anything. And when he started quoting, I was like, man, that's, that's pretty bold right there to write a book like that. And, and it's a great book and incredible resource. But I began to think about that. Uh, how do you get anyone to do anything? How does that happen? And I kind of narrowed it down to really two big motivators, two big factors that make us do things, make me do things, make you do things. And the first one is this, fear. Fear is an incredible motivator. Fear will make you do things that you always said you would never do. Uh, Throw it back to just 10 days ago when Hurricane Florence was coming towards the coast and uh, mayors and governors started putting out a state of emergencies and mandatory evacuations, and tens of thousands of people went from the coast and came inland because of fear. It wasn't because somebody told them to. They were fearful. They were worried that their house would get destroyed or that the floodwaters would get too high. Even if it was just a fear of a loss of comfort, they would do that. Like, I'm fearful that my power will go out and I will not have air conditioner for seven days. And so I am, I am going to evacuate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to another area. Fear is a big thing. Fear is actually one of the big motivators for kids, right? You know this, right? So raise your hand, like real quick, audience participation time. Raise your hand if your mom or your dad spanked you when you were growing up. All right, team, team whooping here. <laughs> and if you didn't raise your hand, we know. <laughs> We know your mama didn't whoop you enough. We can tell. We know who you are. My mom used to spank my brother and I, but I'm, like, I'm going to be honest, she spanked us a lot, and we deserved every one of them. Like, I'm not trying to pretend like it was not fair or she shouldn't have done that. My brother and I got away with a lot more than what we actually got spanked for. But um, my mom, uh, growing up, my mom was not the type of girl that was, uh, wait till your dad gets home. My mom never waited till my dad got home. If my brother and I were misbehaving at home, she would immediately spank us and send us up to our room. And here's the deal, what we knew. If my mom gave us a spanking, I knew that I was going to get another spanking sometime that day as well. Because when my mom came and found my dad, like when my dad came home and my dad found out what we had done, he was going to spank us too. And so my mom would spank us. My brother and I would be fighting or arguing at the house, and my mom would spank us. They'd go up to your room, and we would listen. One of the most terrifying noises of my childhood. You want to know what it is? Most terrifying noises of my childhood is hearing my father's belt exit his belt loops. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? Like when somebody takes their belt off, it's like, oh, man. (laughs) I get chills thinking about that, man. 
we would hear, my mom would send us upstairs, and we would hear my dad's car come home and, and park in the driveway, and I'd hear the door close. I would hear my dad walk into the house. I would hear my mom over-exaggerate to my father what my brother and I did. I'm like, that ain't even how it happened, mom. What are you doing? No, 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 no. And then we would hear my dad say, I'll handle it. And I would hear my dad walk up the stairs. And I would hear my dad stop. My brother and I shared a room. We had bunk beds in there. My dad would stop at the door. We would have it closed and locked for good reason. <laughs> and we would have it closed and locked. And we'd hear my dad stop at the end of the door. And, and then we would hear my dad take his belt off. And it would make that noise like... <laughs> Here's the deal. My dad's a little guy. He's like a slender guy. He's a tall, slender guy. He's 30-inch waist, 32-inch waist. But I'm telling you, when I would hear that belt, it would sound like that belt was like 90 inches coming out. Like, I don't know. It was just... I'm like... I'm, I'm looking at my brother. I'm like, how many times does he have it wrapped around his waist, man? Uh, is the door locked? What is going on here? Man, so my dad was, I don't even know why I'm laughing, because that belt hurt. I mean, like there are no good memories of that belt. Um, so my dad would spank us, and so when my dad told us something, he would say, do this, or when you get home, I'm going to spank you. We would listen, because fear was a motivator for us. We were afraid. On the other side uh, is not just fear, but one of the second ways that makes us do things and motivators for us is reward. If we get rewarded for something, then we will do it. If we say, if you behave, then I will get you something, or I will do something for you, or something good will happen to you, then that becomes a motivator for us. Um, when, when I was in high school, my dad told my brother and I, he said, if you guys will study and make good grades and get a scholarship to college, then I will buy you a car. I'll buy you a car so you can go to college. And so my brother and I, we wanted to drive a car. We didn't have a car in college. We didn't want to hitch a ride, and we wanted to have the freedom of that. And so sure enough, we studied hard, uh, did what we were supposed to do, got scholarships to go to college, and my dad bought us a car. Now, I should have specified what car meant. Like when he said, I'm going to buy you a car, I didn't know it was going to be as old and raggedy as the one I got, but it was a car, so he did not lie. And uh, so he did that, and so that was a reward. That was, that was what made me obey my dad, was that if I do what I'm supposed to do, then one day he's going to give me a car, and, and I'm going to be able to go to school in a car. Everybody in here at your job, this plays out every day. When your boss tells you what to do, you do it for one of two reasons, either fear or reward. Fear is if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then I'm going to get fired, or I won't have a job anymore, or uh, that he's, my boss is going to call me out in front of everybody and embarrass me, or he's going to dock my pay or take some vacation away. And so when my boss tells me what to do, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to obey him. And then the other side is the reward, right? So if the, the boss says to do something, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what I'm told and do what I'm supposed to do, because if I do that, then at the end of the week, then I'm going to get a paycheck, right? And if you do what you're supposed to do for long enough, then you'll get more money and another raise, and, and you'll continue to grow throughout the organization, and, and your reward will keep getting bigger and bigger. It's one of the two big motivators. You want to know why you do what you do? It's probably out of fear or either reward. But here's a question. What about with God? If somebody asks you, why do you obey God? As a follower of Jesus or a Christian, if you're here today, then that's what we do. We listen to God and we do what he says. We obey him. Why would you do that? 
And a lot of people, I'll be honest, a lot of people will say, because I can get something out of it. Because if I obey God, then my life is better. My life is easier. God hooks me up. And we've, it's almost like this under-the-table agreement with God that, hey, God, here's the deal. As long as you hook me up, as long as you do something for me, as long as like if I scratch your back, then you will scratch my back, then I'll keep being obedient to you. I will follow you to the bitter end. I will always do what you tell me to do as, as long as I got plenty of money and I'm happy and I'm healthy and I got a great family. And here's what that's called, conditional obedience. A lot of people have conditional obedience. We say, God, as long as you do for me, then I will do for you. As long as you are providing, then I'm following. Like, I'm, I'm on your team. God, I'm right behind you. I got your back. But hey, listen, the moment that I lose comfort, the moment that I'm not making big money, the moment that I have some problems and some heartaches in life, then God, I'm out. <laughs> I, I, I'm done with this, but you keep your end of the bargain and I'll keep my end of the bargain. So what would you say? Why do you obey God? Why do you listen to God and do what he says? We're going to close down this teaching series in Haggai. And at this point in the story, the people are doing exactly what God has told them to do. They are obeying him 100% with what they've been called. But here's the catch. They're noticing something. Their life hasn't gotten any better. Because wait a minute, God, like, I thought that if I followed you, then you would do stuff for me. I thought that if I obeyed you, then my life would get better, or my life would be easier, or I would always be successful, or I would always have it. See, I, I just thought that you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and I, I thought that was the agreement that we had, and the people began to look at God and say, God, as long as you're delivering, I'm in. As long as you got my back, I'm on Team Jesus, and we're going to do this together. But the minute, the minute that you don't come through, the very moment that I realized that my life is not going smooth and comfortable and that I have everything that I want, then God, maybe, maybe it's just not worth following you. Maybe, maybe this is all just a big sham. Maybe... It's not even worth obeying you. And that's the point that the people got, and they battled with this concept that I think a lot of people battle today, and it's um, obedience that is conditional. Obedience, not, not just 100% obedience, but my obedience to you, God, whether I do what you tell me to do, has conditions to it. And so we're going to look in Haggai chapter 2, verse 11, and we kind of get a, an inside sight into what these people are dealing with and this idea that, man, God, if I do something for you, doesn't that mean you have to do something for me? And that's the whole reason why I'm doing this, right? It's the whole reason of following God, some people believe. And so in verse 11, God sees this. He's going to use Haggai to, to ask him this question, tell him this story. Here's verse 11. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. This is what God says. Ask the priest this question about the law. Gather all the, the priests and the pastors together that work in the church, and I want you to ask them this question. If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robes, and his robe happens to brush up against some bread or stew, wine or olive oil, or any kind of other food, will it also become holy? The priest replied, no. What in the world? Meat and robes, and what are we talking about here? Let, let me break it down for you. Um, people would bring animals to be sacrificed in the temple on the altar. And one of the things that God did to provide for the people that worked in the temple is he would allow them at the end of the day when the temple had cleared and everybody had gone, he would allow them to go to the altar and take meat that was on the altar to feed them. 
And so these priests would go into the altar and they'd get some meat and kind of wrap it up in some paper and they had a little pocket in their robe that they would slide it into. Now, if meat was sacrificed on the altar, it was called clean. Right? It was blessed by God. It was not unclean or unholy. It was holy. And so here's the question that he asked. If holy meat in some guy's robe, I know this is a weird story, but stick with me. Holy meat walks by this table, and if the meat or the guy's robe brushes up against a loaf of bread that is on the table, does that make that loaf of bread clean? Does that mean that loaf of bread is holy? Does that mean that, that whatever it touches become holy? And the priest obviously says no. So let me, let me break it down maybe in more of a modern day example. If you were to put hand sanitizer on your hands, rub it in, and then you go to McDonald's and you go into the bathroom, right? And you go to the toilet seat, and you take your hand, and you rub it all the way around the toilet seat. On the top, then on the bottom, and then on all the door handles and everything. Quick question. Your hands were clean because you touched the toilet seat, and your hands were clean. Is the toilet seat now clean? No, right? That took a little too long for you to answer. Please don't be, please don't be confused on this. No, he says, no, here's what happens. If something clean touches something dirty, it doesn't make the dirty thing clean. It makes the clean thing dirty. So obvious question right here, right? So if, you're, if your hands are clean, but you touch something dirty, does that mean what was dirty is now clean? No, it's whatever's dirty makes your hands clean. So the priest, they have no idea where Haggai's going with this. They're like, yeah, duh. Like, no, when you touch a toilet seat, your hand is dirty now. It doesn't make the seat clean. And so he says, okay, well, let me, let me ask you another question then. Then Haggai said, verse 13, if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person and then touches any of these foods, will the food be defiled? And the priest's answer was, yes. See, again, in this culture where to be in front of God, to be in the temple, to be near God, you had to be clean. It was ceremoniously clean or unclean. You could not be anywhere near God's presence if you were unclean. And one of the ways that you became unclean was by touching something that was dead. Throw back to your childhood and you're walking down the road and like there's a squirrel that got hit by a car. What do you do? You poke it, right? You touch it, you kick it. Is it just me? Okay, just me. All right. So, like, and, and so Scripture says, man, like, if you touch the dead squirrel, you don't want to go home and put your hand in the potato chip bag, right? It's going to make every, all the chips bad. You don't, you don't want to do that. That's the way it works, right? And they're like, yeah, it, it, yeah, of course. If, if something dirty touches something clean, it makes it dirty. It's just the reason why your mom tells you before you go into the house, take your shoes off. Because if you have mud on your shoes, everything your shoe touches will get dirty. It's not like your shoe comes in contact with a clean carpet and the carpet cleans your shoe for you. That's not how it works. And so Haggai makes this response. Isn't this obvious, like clean and dirty, the, the contamination that happens? Is everybody tracking with this? And we're like, yeah, exactly. Everybody knows this. Like dirty things make clean things dirty. That's, that's, just, that's just how life works. And so Haggai says, well, let me explain to you what God is trying to say in verse 14. Then Haggai responded, that, that is how it is with this people and this nation, says the Lord. Everything you do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. God says, even when you're doing things that seem right, because you have sin in your heart, everything you touch is now dirty. And here Haggai makes a, a bold claim here. Stick with me like dial in. 
the right thing done with the wrong heart is the wrong thing. You tracking with me? Like, the right thing, clean hands, but a dirty heart means dirty hands. The right thing done with the wrong heart becomes the wrong thing. And Haggai says, that is you. You think you've been doing the right thing this whole time, focused on how clean your hands are and the things that you do and the generosity that you share, but the whole time your heart has been far from God. And can I tell you what God cares about the most? Not whether or not you follow the rules, but how clean is your heart. It's a heart issue. The right thing done with the wrong heart becomes the wrong thing. Let me throw it back to the New Testament. Jesus told this story. There was a man that came into the temple to give an offering. Good thing, right? It's exactly what God calls us to do. Honor God with our finances. Give through the local church. Here's what the story goes. Jesus says, but right before the man dropped it in the offering basket, he remembered that there was a friend or a brother of his that he had done wrong. And he was harboring something in his heart. You know what Jesus said? Immediately stop. Do not put that money in the offering basket. Whoa, never heard a preacher say that before, right? What do you mean? Like, give the money, right? No, Jesus said, don't give the money. Because the right thing with the wrong heart becomes the wrong thing. So he says, give that money to the guy beside you. Leave the church immediately. Go and apologize to that brother. Make it right in your heart first. Then come back and give your offering. God is so much more interested in your heart than he is what you do with your hands. Because the right thing done with the wrong heart becomes the wrong thing. And God says this is the story of those people. For so long in their mind they've been thinking, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going through all of the right motions. I'm obeying everything that I'm supposed to. And God says the whole time, in your heart, your motives, your heart is not clean. And everything you touch is affected by the sin that's in your life. Kids are the same way. Let me, let me explain to you this. As a, as a kid, this is what my mom used to do. It was not good enough to say words. You had to actually mean it. Sometimes I would for various reasons, slapped my brother as hard as I could, right in the face. There were good reasons. Here's what my mom would do. When my mom found out that I slapped the fire out of my brother, she would make me apologize. But if you remember, if your mom ever did this to you, it was not good enough just to say, I'm sorry. My mom would say, hey, you need to go up there, you need to tell Stephen you're sorry. I'd walk in the door, sorry, walk right back downstairs, whatever I was doing. She's like, nope, not good enough. You didn't mean it. Mom knew if you didn't mean it. And so it would escalate. She would say, you need to come in here and tell him you're sorry like you mean it. And so I said, I'm sorry. My mom still didn't believe me. You know what she'd make you do? Hug. The worst. Tell your brother you're sorry and give him a hug. You ever tried to hug somebody you're angry at? Right? You just squeeze him as hard as you can. Why did my mom do that? Because she wasn't just interested in the words that came out of my mouth. She was interested in my heart. Are you really sorry? I'm not asking you just to recite some words. Are you really sorry? Are you earnestly seeking forgiveness? Because if you're not, I'm going to make you say it again. God's not just interested in your words or how clean your hands are. He's interested in your heart. Why are you doing it? 
What is the motive behind it? Where is God in all of this? Why do you obey? So here's where Haggai kind of lands the plane. You want to know why you obey God? You want to know why people that are followers of Jesus listen to God and do what he says? It is not because we're scared of what may happen if we say no. It is not because we're convinced that God will bless us if we do what he tells us to do. It is because our heart is in love with God. And when your heart is in love with God, then your actions and your attitudes will be different. When your heart is in tune with God and following God, then you will have a desire to honor God. You will have a desire to love God. You will have a desire to obey God, even if God never did anything for you, ever. If you love God, then you'll obey what he says. Not fear, not reward. He says, man, where is your heart on it? I'm not asking you to jump through more hoops. I'm not asking you. God is not asking you to follow more rules. God says, where's your heart? That's what I'm after. Like, what, deep down, where is your heart? Is your heart turned towards God? God's not looking for blind obedience. He's not looking for us to obey Him so that He can bless us. He's not looking to instill fear in our hearts so that we will be terrified of Him and we would never even think about doing something that He hasn't called us to do. Now, God says obedience comes from the heart. It's an overflow of our love and our honor for God. So why do you obey God? Haggai was trying to get these people's attention and saying, and I'm not asking what you're doing, I'm saying where, where is your heart? In, in verse 15, he continues, he says, Look at what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. When you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. Do you remember that chapter? In, in chapter 1, do you remember those verses where God says, you're working really hard, but there's no satisfaction. You're eating all the time, but you're never full. You're drinking constantly, but you're never quenched of your thirst. You're making all kind of money, but you're putting your money in pockets that have holes in the bottom of it. There's no satisfaction. There's no reward. There's nothing. I don't know what you're looking for, but it's not there. There's no joy or satisfaction. God says, remember that? See, before you were working in the temple, your heart was all in the wrong place. Remember in chapter 1, they didn't care anything about God's house. They just cared about their house. They were building their house and their fortune and their life and their money and their success and their future. But God says, what about me? What about my house? What about your heart towards me? Where is it going to play out? How is this going to go? And God said, because your heart was in the right place, you're, you're, you're saving, you're spending, you're traveling, you're doing, you're going, and there's no results. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction. Nothing is happening because of that. Where's your heart? And God says something really tough here in verse 17. Why do you think that happened? Why do you think you worked your tail off and didn't get anything? Why did you think you gave everything you had, but you still didn't get the desired results? God says, I'll, I'll tell you why. Verse 17, I, God, sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce produce. I, I, God, sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. Even so, you refused to turn to me. God says the reason why you didn't get ahead is because I wouldn't let you. 
man, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I don't like that God. That's, that's hard right there. You mean to tell me all the work I've put into it, God, and you're the one that stopped it? All the blood, sweat, and tears that have been going into this and everything that I've given, and you're the one that allowed it to fail? You were the one that, that stopped it? You were the one that was responsible for the results that were produced? You were the one for the lack of joy and satisfaction and all that I've tried. After all I've done, after all I've tried, after years of following the rules and trying to do the right thing and trying to check the boxes off like that was, that was you. We see the truth here that maybe the reason why God didn't change your situation is because he wanted to change your heart instead. And all this time we've been praying for more of this and more of this and less of that. And instead of giving us that, God allowed all the chips to fall. Because he wasn't interested in our earthly success, he was interested in our heart. And if all those things were distracting us from pursuing what mattered the most, then God would let us feel that crunch. Then God would let that scenario play out. What kind of a God is that? Do you really want to obey him? But the key is the second part of verse 17. He said, even all of that, you still did not return to me. Here's the deal, listen. God does not allow some bad things to happen in your life to punish you. It's actually an attempt to restore you. God said, I, I let the money go through your pockets. I let you be hungry. I let you be thirsty despite all the work. You want to know why? Because it was an attempt to get your heart to turn back towards me. Because you know what I care about more than your hunger and thirst and money? Your heart. And sometimes, I want to be crystal clear on this, sometimes God allows bad things to happen in our life in an attempt for our hearts to be turned back to him. It's not every time. Like don't, don't miss that. Don't leave thinking that I said that. Sometimes bad things happen in our life because we live in a fallen, sinful world. Sometimes bad things happen in our life because we have an enemy that is prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. Sometimes we have bad things that happen in our life because you did something dumb, right? Okay, let's just be honest. But sometimes bad things, God allows bad things to happen in our life, not to punish us, but in hopes that we would stop and think where does this all come from? Who really matters? What is the most important thing? Who is my priority? What am I building with this life? The same thing that God does is the same thing that any good parent would do to a rebellious kid. Imagine you go off to college. Your parents pay for it. Your dad pays for it, whatever it is. And, and you go and, and uh, you decide... Class is just not for you. <laughs> so you start skipping class, and, and you think weekends are for partying. And so you start going and getting wasted on the weekends and doing drugs and skipping class and hanging out with people you shouldn't have and buying stupid stuff and going into debt and doing stuff that you shouldn't do. What's the first thing that a good, loving father is going to do? Cut you off. <laughs> Like, why in the world would any dad look at his son or daughter that is blowing their life and blowing all of the money that he's providing and say, you know what, I think I'll throw another thousand to it. No. The first thing a parent's going to do is like, if that's what you want to do, then it's on you. You can start paying for your school. 
You can start paying for your gas. You can start paying for your food. You can start paying. All the bills are yours. You want to make those decisions? Then it's yours. Why does a dad do that? Why does a mom do that? Is it to punish their kids? Nope. It's to hope that they turn back. It's to restore them. It's to hope that their kid reaches a point where they realize, what I am doing is dumb. That is not why I'm here for. This does not honor the Father. This is not what my life is supposed to be. And in that moment, they realize when dad cuts off the funds, they realize this is not worth it. I'm going in the wrong direction. It's time to do what dad told me to do and turn back to the Father. And that's exactly what God does. He says, if you want to waste your life, if you want to pursue stuff that's meaningless, if you want to make you the number one priority, then through free will you can do it. But my hand's going to be off of it. And so you'll work as hard as you can and realize you'll never have enough. And you'll constantly search for satisfaction and fulfillment, and you will never find it. And God's hope is hopefully not, man, he doesn't want you to hit rock bottom, but if that's what it takes, then one day for you to lose everything and turn around and say, God was right. God was a good father. Everything that I have comes from God. Man, why why did I do that? I got to turn back. And in a verse that when you originally read it, you think like, what kind of God would do that? The more you think about it, it's the most gracious, loving thing that a father could ever do for a rebellious kid. So God looks at these people and says, even though you think you've been doing the right things and living a clean life, here's the deal. Because your hearts are burdened with sin. Everything you touch is wrong. Everything you touch is defiled. Everything you touch, even the right things done the right way, become the wrong things. The people heard the message. This story actually ends on a high note. Because the people learned their lesson. They heard the message from God. And scripture says that their hearts turned back to God. And God made them a promise. In verse 19, I want to leave you with this. God says in in chapter 2, verse 19, He says, I am giving you a promise now. While the seed is still in the barn, you have not yet harvested your grain, and your grapevines, your fig trees, your pomegranates, and olive trees have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward, I will bless you. After all of the frustration, after all of the running, after all of the leaning the ladder on the wrong building and getting to the top and realize you're at the top of the ladder leaning up against the wrong building, after all of the effort and the time that was placed into it. The people finally turned their hearts back to God, and God says, I promise to bless you. But I don't want you to miss this, because God God does something really cool here. The temple is not yet built, but God says, I'll bless you. The seed is still in the bar. You haven't even planted the seed yet, but I'm telling you, everything that you touch now will be successful. Everything that your life is about will flourish. Everything that goes on will produce incredible results because I will bless you. And I love the fact that God decided to bless them before the temple was built because it proves that God's not interested just in your blind obedience, but he's interested in your heart. God's not interested in just do what I tell you to do and then I will bless you. He says, turn your heart towards me. New Testament, seek 
first the kingdom of God and all of the other things will be added. It doesn't say do first. It doesn't say be first. It doesn't say change first. It doesn't say jump through all the hoops first. It doesn't say obey all the rules first. It says seek first with your heart. Seek God first and all of the other things will be added unto you. Our obedience to God is not based on fear. And it's not based on some reward that we think we will get if we just jump through the hoops and go to church and give and serve and sacrifice and do the right things. Our obedience to God is based on the love that we have for the Father. That even when we were rebellious, He came after us. That even when we had tested Him the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth, and the tenth time, He still forgave, still gave, still offered a chance. He's the God of second chances. The reason we obey is not out of fear. Our obedience is an overflow of our love for God. And when you love someone, you have a desire to honor them, to elevate them, to prioritize them, and to make them the center over everything else. God is not interested in you following the rules. He's interested in your heart this morning.